the path of the witch is so unique. The, the gift of witchcraft. I was able to see, hear, and communicate with spirits. A very personal relationship between a person and spirit. Carnal lust and some things like that. Working with different energies and spirits and communicating. Creating magic. Powerful yeah. ritual and powerful <laughs> spells. She's actually sending me in the cold. The role of the witch is to make change. Bless it be, y'all. Bless it be. People ask me, like, okay, I'm a witch, and I don't know what to do. Twenty years ago, three young friends realized they were witches. They scattered to different parts of the world, following magic and spirit. Now, they're back in their hometown to share what they've learned. Welcome to That Witch Life Podcast, your home for living as a witch in today's world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to That Witch Life Podcast. I'm Hillary. I'm your host today, and I'm joined by Courtney. Hello. And Kanani. Hello. And uh, we're excited to have you here with us. What has everyone been up to? Uh, Actually, I got to see Courtney about a week ago to give her 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 belated birthday presents. Her favorite, I think, was the card that I gave her. Such a shit. (laughs) It was her favorite. What was the card? Okay, what was the card? It opened it. It said, happy 40th. It looked at it and go, I'm not turning 40. And she just giggles. And when I opened it up, it just said, ha, 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 because I turned 39. So she gave me a a card that said happy 40th. Man, you're a dick. I know. (laughs) I told her because now I get to buy her two 40th birthday cards. Yeah. (laughs) So, no, it was, uh, so we had fun. We, um. Did a socially distanced witches walk, which was really fun. Nice. And uh, got to see um, just kind of some like, cute park in McMinnville. And then did a really yummy uh, barbecue over at Courtney's house. Well, we forgot the trip to the grocery store, Kanani. <laughs> first of all, this, is, this may only make sense to people in Oregon. Um, but first of all, Kanani was upset that I suggested we go to Albertsons instead of Safeway. Never mind the fact that they're basically the same, but for some reason, Albertsons is just a little crappier, and I'm not sure why. So, <laughs> but Kanani made it very clear that she was disappointed that we were going to Albertsons instead of Safeway. And um, I said, okay, we went inside. And here's the thing about this pandemic. It has made the chatty people chattier, and it has made the unchatty, I just want to get the fuck out people, more unchatty. I just want to get the fuck out. Now, Kanani and I, despite being a podcast host, are actually on the non-chatty, just get the fuck outside. But we had this meat counter guy who was way into the chatty side, and I thought he was going to follow us out of the fucking store. <laughs> I don't he, even, I mean, it was all we could do just to stand there and wait for him. He only helped one other person in front of us. For like 10 minutes. For like 10 minutes. Oh my God. And we just kept looking at each other like we're going to rage. We're going to, we can't do it here. Like it's going to have to be somewhere more appropriate. Like we can't rage in Albert. Like the parking lot. Okay. And oh my God, that's I don't even know what he was. The, the worst part was it's one thing if people are having like a conversation, the things that he was saying didn't even make sense. <laughs> And you could tell it was even confusing to the people he was trying to talk to who were also (laughs) clearly trying to flee, right? So it's just this guy trying to carry on these conversations that have no end, that make no sense. The first people were able to flee. And so when we finally get up to the counter to make our order, 
we are trying to be as as concise and use as few words as possible. That he was like, what are you going to do with them? We're like, kebabs. He goes, oh, you know what this? You oh my God, you're like, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. And then we're like, put them in the wrap them up, please. We got to go. And then he goes, I made kebabs this morning. Let's look at each one individually here in the meat counter case. Did you see how many slices of onion I put on there? If you separate them this way... I'm actually laughing at this point because I am watching steam come out of Kanani's ears because we all know she does not like people, especially people she doesn't know, especially people who try to get her to talk at the meat counter at Albertsons. All of these things, all of these things. And I know that in like my head, I'm thinking, okay, well, the meat counter is so high. Like I can jump pretty high. Like how, <laughs> how, at what angle do I need to propel my body so that I can clear this counter and just take him out and- <laughs> and then we like we we had we ordered one other thing I can't remember what it was, and then as he's doing that and he's handing it to us, so like it's over, we're done. He goes, so how are you going to co- cook the kebabs? And we're like running with our cart and we he's like over our shoulder, we're like barbecue, run. He's like run. he's like coming out around the meat counter, wanting to like discuss this with us. Like, dude, I know you're bored and lonely. Quarantine has sucked a lot. We are not the answer. Okay, we got to go. <laughs> and then all the oh way home, Kanani, Kanani's like, you made me go to Albertsons. This is all your fault. I don't do Albertsons. I'm like, <laughs> oh was, my God. It was 100% her fault. I have had, well, first of all, um, I like my edible garden is getting massive, uh, which is great. I have, I'm growing, let's see, I'm growing lettuce. My kale, the birds fucked with my kale. So I'm going to, no, fuck those but, birds. But I have lettuce, I have spinach, I have, rainbow chard. I have cabbage. I have beets. I have zucchinis. I have acorn squash and butternut squash. I have broccoli. I have celery. I have fennel. I have four kinds of tomatoes and tomatillos and then a bunch of herbs, but the herbs are in a different section because they don't like to get quite as much sun. So my vegetable garden is going great. Uh, but my plants, I found some spider mites on both the vegetable garden plants and my, and my herbs. And so I was up very late last night, um, putting, uh, releasing ladybugs. So I had to wait till like the sun went down and then I had to put water on the plants. So the ladybugs would have something to drink. So I released like a hundred plus ladybugs, um, onto the plants. So now my garden is crawling with ladybugs, which is cute, but they also like crawled all over my arm, which is kind of freaky. Cause I was like, Oh God. Like, even though I was like, you're cute. I was like this feeling of things crawling at my arm, like 20 or 30 of them kind of freaked me out. Um, but the, I got, I also got a bunch of new herbs, which I'm really excited about from this cute little plant nursery around the corner from my house, um, that are going in. So like it's, I've been basically spending time in my garden and trying to prepare it frantically for the like two-day hell heat wave that we're going to have here. Those of you in Arizona, I know, I'm sure, are like Point what left. talking about, like, whatever, wham, wham. But, like, for the Northwest, it's going to be 100 degrees or 101, and that is, like, insane for here. Like, none of us have air conditioning. Like, it's – or very few of us have air conditioning. It's, like – And most of our air conditioning is crap because people didn't build houses out here needing it, but now with global warming, now you do. Yeah. For so, like, our little- friends who do not use the Fahrenheit system – that is 32 degrees Celsius. Actually, that's 34 degrees Celsius. That's 34 degrees Celsius. 101 is 34. 101 is 34. So, yes, it will be warm. It will be hot as fuck. 
And I so would be hiding in my bedroom next, holding and hugging my air conditioner. That is where I will be. It reminds so, me, it reminds like ladybugs are the cutest little vicious killers on the planet. So it reminded me, Kanani, a bit of my wedding. Your wedding was fabulous, but I have to say that I've never been so terrified of ladybugs in my entire life. <laughs> And if anyone had ever told me that anything about a ladybug could be terrifying, I would not believe them. But when you were in a hotel in the middle of the mountains and you open your room door and there are literally thousands of ladybugs covering the walls and the floor and you can't even step without crunching on like 30, 50 ladybugs, it's horrifying. Yeah, and they came home with us in our suitcases too. Oh, I don't doubt it. When there's lots of that. So like, they're super cute. But yeah, I mean, I'm not kidding. Like when they came crawling out of that bag, they came like racing up my arm. And like, I found one in my shirt when I was going like getting ready to go to bed. And like, I can deal with a couple. But yeah, I mean, like bugs are bugs. Like when there's that many crawling on you, you're like, blah. It was so weird. When I was taking a shower to get ready before the ceremony, there were literally like more than like 100 to 200 ladybugs in the shower with me. And I'm just like, okay. This is fine. That's why that was the stoic look We're all in my wedding photos. Is there's there's Kanani, my bridesmaid, standing up there, and it's like, oh, she looks so pensive and supportive and so engaged in the moments with this. She's like, I'm traumatized. I'm looking like, for my shower. That's what I'm doing. They're coming. <laughs> yeah. They're gonna fight. I have, like, I have one of those things where like I kept waking up thinking that there was a bug on me. You know, like when you've had bugs crawl on you before you go to bed, and then like all night you're like, it's a bug, but it's really just a piece of hair, or like it's a bug, and it's like Riley type yeah. of liquid. And I like haven't been sleeping well in general, just because like, well, for those of you, I'm sure many of you, um, we're in Portland, Oregon, I'm sure the world has heard about it at this point, but there's some like very intense protests that are going on here right now. Um, And it's just very tense in the city. And I mean, I think the news makes it seem like literally every inch of Portland, Oregon is under siege. It's not, it's, it's very, it's condensed to a very small area downtown, but it's really intense. And the, you know, we've had, uh, federal officers uh, sent in, which is a huge over, overstep of the government, really. And they've been incredibly violent. They've been using really inappropriate force. They've been grabbing people off of the street without identifying themselves, without any reason for holding them, throwing them into unmarked vehicles and taking them and holding them in sometimes unknown places and then just releasing them. I mean, like, it's real. it's terrifying. There's no... Um, it's, I don't think it's anything like, at least in my lifetime, I've seen to this level of just like total and utter throw out of the constitution. Oh, and I, I work, uh, my, my job, um, works downtown. And so, um, not all of my, some of my coworkers are still, uh, are still there right now. And so it's kind of funny because for people in Portland, I keep getting posts from people who are posting pictures of Portland that look exactly the same as they did three months ago. And they're like, oh, look, the horror, the siege. Because people are in Portland are so tired of hearing about what a shit show Portland is when it's not. It's like three blocks. It's three blocks around the Justice Center where all of the yeah. events are happening only in the evening. You can walk through those blocks during the day. I actually saw there was some vendors out there that were making ribs during the day to feed the protesters, knowing they were going to be riot ribs. Yeah. And so it's like, this is like the happiest, like this is 
it's such a good place. And so to see all this stuff on the news and that being said, the feds have come in and have gotten so violent and so out of control that uh, about a week ago, there was a group that came out called the mom's group and they came and they shielded the protesters. And a lot of people have probably seen this on the news. They shielded the protesters. This really happened and they were singing and everybody was just like, this is amazing. This is beautiful. And there was only a couple hundred people. There was a few hundred people out there. And then all of a sudden, the feds, the police, the federal troops came out of the justice center. They, they surrounded the protesters on all sides before they realized, the protesters realized what was, what had happened or that they were even there. And then before they knew what happened, they were tear gassed and being shot with rubber bullets. And it was so shocking and uh, and it was it was one of the first experiences that a lot of white people especially white middle class people have ever had with authorities which is a similar experience to a lot of people of color where for absolutely no reason an officer or a person of authority starts attacking you for no reason you were doing nothing wrong and now you were literally under attack and it has so enraged this city and this group of moms and people that I'm on a ton of mom suburban Facebook posts and groups where it's like, oh, what arts and crafts are we going to do for our kids? And oh, how do you make your backyard kid friendly? And now they're taking posts and they're like, hey, I'm making tear gas solution that I'm putting in bottled waters or bottled water containers. Who has extra containers? Who wants to donate supplies and go with me? We're going to pass these out to the protesters because we know they're going to get the shit kicked out of them tonight and they're going to have tear gas needlessly sprayed in their face. And all of these moms are now like absolutely militant about protecting these protesters. And then we had the dad group that joined the next night with the leaf blowers. And then we have a veterans group the next night that showed up. And then the next night there was a grandma's group, the raging grannies. So it's like what had started with before the feds came less than a hundred people showing up every night. Now I was told by someone who was there, there was more than 15,000 people there last night protesting and trying to protect the protesters because of what's going on with the feds and how out of control they are behaving with the protesters and how much they are violently attacking the protesters. And some of the stories that are coming out of it are amazing. And so what I want for people to take away for, that don't live in town is one, Portland is fine. Portland is beautiful. There's a three block radius of Portland of people that are fighting like hell to protect their rights, to protect the rights of people of color and, and need all the support they can get. But Portland is not under siege. Portland is not out of control. And the federal government has completely overstepped its bounds. Yeah. And let's, and let's be clear too, like prior to, the feds coming in, in which it was escalated to ridiculous proportions, the police weren't being great either. They were consistently tear gassing people. They were, you know, and you were talking about tear gassing people during a pandemic. So it, it, people have masks on and it's like now they're coughing. Some people are ripping off their masks because they can't breathe, right? Because yeah. they tear gas directly in the face. It, it Every city they've said, you know, like this is help, you know, this makes the spread of the virus worse because actually protests in general, because of vast majority mask usage and now hundred percent mask usage, they're not 
we're not seeing a lot of virus spread. But in that scenario, the last thing you want is people having vulnerable respiratory systems during a respiratory pandemic. And like, it was just, I mean, so the feds have definitely stepped way over bounds and they've escalated it to another level of just complete violent insanity. But the police force, it's not like they were, they were doing it right before, before uh, the feds got here. It's just been a really disappointing thing to see because Portland is known for, um, I mean, Portland has a long history of protesting people here, you know, though it is a predominantly white city, they tend to like to, they tend to show up when it, when they need to show up and stand up for what's right. Um, but, and, and the protests are generally, you know, pretty mellow. And so it's like, we're talking, and this isn't just Portland. I mean, protests around the United States have not been overwhelmingly violent. You know, it's like, the violence in the vast majority of these scenarios are coming from the police, which is really disappointing, you know? And that's, um, that's the way it's, honestly, that's the way it's always been. I'm sitting over here kind of jaded because I've been doing protests, started my, pro, my activist work in Portland back after yeah, the, the second same. Gulf War. And I'm, I've, I've seen my friends get beaten up. I've seen yep. the cops throw things at people. And of course, they turn around and say that the, the protesters were doing it. And no, so it's this not, is nothing. It's never the fucking nothing, protesters. It is, well, it's not, I wouldn't say it's not never, but... But it's like consistently it's uh, there's been violent pressure from the police and then they blame it all on the protesters. And so people are out there shocked that this is happening. I'm sitting here going, I'm not shocked. But I think where we want to be careful, um, no matter what, what, where you are in this fight, whether you're on the streets or you are, you know, you're doing keyboard warriorship, which is or writing about doing all the, all these things are, are, um, are right. valid, but make sure that, you know, if, if you are white, you are listening to, uh, well, honestly, if you are not black, you should be listening to black people leading this movement. We all need to be involved, but we cannot co-opt it and start making it about something else because now it's, it's turned into more anti-fascist, which is, which is a valid thing to be concerned about as a valid thing to protest, but it's supposed to be right now about black lives matter. And it's becoming more about protecting the white people who are out there on the streets or just focusing it on fascism in general. And like, again, I mean, I'm very anti-fascist. Like we should all be very anti-fascist, but that's not what this, that's not what we're protesting right now. So while the outrage is there, of course, because of how heavily it's escalated and of course the overstep of the federal government, which is disgusting and completely unconstitutional, you know, I, I think it's incredibly important and I really I really am right there with you, Courtney. It's incredibly important that we don't forget what this is about and that we really, really listen to the the Black Lives Matter community organizers because it's we want to make sure that we are elevating their message, not creating our own message. Yeah, for sure. So Courtney, you wanted to talk to us a little bit about L- Lunasa. Yeah, Lunasa. Yeah. So um, the next big holiday in the, uh, the pagan wheel of the year, as they call it, and a lot of times in the United States, I've heard people mispronounce it. They called it Lunasa. It's actually pronounced Lunasa. And uh, Lunasa comes out of Ireland. So it is originally an Irish festival that is very, very old and has been, uh, is a celebration of that has been adopted in many different practices around the world. I know in the Southern Hemisphere, everybody is probably getting ready to celebrate Imolk or Candlemas, and um, but here in the Northern Hemisphere, we are getting ready to celebrate Lunasa. Uh, some pagans call it Lamas. 
Not really sure where Lamas comes from. There's a rumor that that is out of Lord of the Rings, like Lamas bread. <laughs> There's a rumor. I don't know how true that is, so don't sue me on that. But um, the the traditional, the actual original name is Lunasa, and this is this week marks the Feast of Lu, and um, it is a harvest celebration, a ritual that is meant to give thanks for the bounty of the land and to ask the gods' blessings that the weather will hold long enough to gather in the 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 um the first fest, the first harvest. I'm thinking of Hillary here and. And, and needing to, you're experiencing that right now as you've yes. got plants that are ready to harvest and you're fighting against the spider mites. So the traditional uh, date is um, the night of July 31st to August 1st, but modern convenience has usually moved the date to whatever Sunday is nearest. So some sources describe Lunasa as the story of the son, of the god Lu defeating um, the god Kromdolf and making the world safe for humanity once again. So in agricultural terms, the weather has been good enough for months that uh, cripes have ripened amid famine and is defeated for the time being. So it seems that uh, Crom Dove may have been a major god, if not one of the primary gods of Ireland before different waves of invasions came in and replaced the power structure and began to you know, shift which gods were worshipped. Other myths tell of Lu's sorrow for the death of his foster mother, Talcha who died after um, clearing the forests of Ireland to make way for farmland. And that in honor of Talcha, Lou instituted a two-week tribal assembly of games and trading and um, peaceful assembly in memory of Talcha. So um, this is kind of think about like maybe the pre-Olympic games that were actually happening in Ireland, not related to the Olympics, but think of something similar to that. And great sporting events took place in each tribe's center of power as the champions would test themselves against each other in feats of strength, of speed, and skill. And this festival would last for two weeks, culminating in the festival of the Lunasa bonfires. And for these two weeks, it was really important that peace would be held. So no tribes would be fighting over cattle or anything like that. Um, this was also a time when new laws were set down and announced, and musicians and storytellers would offer new poems and perform new songs for the first time. There was also um, said to be the custom of temporary or trial marriages being sanctioned at Lunasa and the emphasis on horse racing um, coupled with the tradition of trial marriages and an emphasis on fertility may reveal even earlier spiritual roots of this festival. So Lunasa is traditionally marked by a bonfire as are most ancient Irish festivals, um, feasting, the ceremonial cutting of the first corn, picking of wild berries and dancing. So for Lunasa, many of these things might take place on top of a mountain as the climb is symbolic of Lu's ascent to battle Kromdolf and presumably honoring, um, honoring Lu by, by getting up. Sometimes people call uh, Lu the sun god, but other translations call him the shining one. So it may have been a misunderstanding. So um, I, it's, I, th I think one of the things about Lu is he was said to be many skilled and so he might have been, you know, bright, bright and shinier person, but I wouldn't necessarily call him a sun god. So no matter where you are, if you want to celebrate uh, Lunasa, lighting a fire, if you can um, set a fire in your backyard, that's great. If you don't have a yard or you can't or you have burning restrictions in your area, um, lighting candles indoors is fine. So are battery operated candles, friends. That is totally okay to do what you can and be respectful of your environment. So making offerings of your local produce. Um, if you do follow a, a, a you know an Irish influenced or a, a deity influenced path, you can make offerings to Lou. But I would also say consider making offerings to your local land spirits. And so 
here where we are in the Pacific Northwest, blueberries and blackberries are coming in around this time. My husband almost always makes blueberry bread around this time at Lunasa. And um, this is a really good time to make music and tell stories. This is a great way to involve children or nervous family members in a more communal celebration. It's like, hey, we don't have to do a big, weird, scary ritual. We can do a little talent show. Everybody brings something to share. And so the music or the stories you tell don't have to be pagan or witchcraft themed. They can be about anything. One year we had people come in and share their stories. And unfortunately I had one of my most awkward priestessing experiences of all time is that I was reading Snow Glass. I decided to read Snow Glass and Apples by Neil Gaiman. And I forgot how sexually explicit that story was. And <laughs> I had been years since I read it and halfway through, I was like, this is really a sex. Should I stop here? Or is that oh going to make God, it more so awkward? awkward. So, awkward. so I finished it and it was terrible because this one woman got so disturbed that I would share the story like that at, at a religious rite, And she cried and left. And I was like, wow, okay. Things we've learned. It was good for me because it really helped me be much more in, you know, in a, intentional about what the things that I share, but it was, I was, I was coming from my places. I love the story. It's so badass. You know, we, we hear the story of Snow White from the Queen's version and it's really disturbing. And so <laughs> I could laugh about it now, but it's been a good 10 years, but it was certainly painful at the time. So um, other things you can do, which I'm going to plan to do is clear weeds, whether this is an honor of Talcha or an honor of your land spirits and considering planting native plants in um, honor of the land spirits and or pour out water to the land spirits to honor their fertility. Um, but this is a good time you'd like to make things fertile in your own life, you know, whether it's fertility of projects or, you know, to help a pet, or if you're actually trying to make small humans, this is a good time to ask for that help. So it's a, it's a really great, um, it, it can be a very lighthearted holiday. I have found though that it tends to it tends to bring out some heavy stuff when you don't think about it. You, th you think it's for fun, you think it's for festival, but sometimes it can actually expose you to some uh, painful stuff, whether it's things you have to investigate in yourself or things within your community. When I was running my coven, it always seemed like at Lunasa, we would have this really lighthearted celebration, but something that really needed to be worked on in the coven would come barreling out to the forefront. It would always kind of shake us up. So I also let people know that, that that even the most lighthearted witchcraft celebrations can sometimes call, call for you to look at some dark stuff. But that's the thing about fertility holidays. They're not always light and friendly. We tend to think of fertility work and fertility spirits as this friendly, happy, this is the, this is the pot, like the, the light stuff. But every fertility god or goddess has also has a very heavy handed, scary side to them. And that is no different. So I just say go into Lunasa with as much uh, joy and celebration as you can. But, you know, and then if, if may, maybe you won't have these experiences, but if you have something that comes up that's kind of dark and heavy, embrace it and just say, that's just part of this too. And it's time for me to work through this stuff and look at it. So um, that's what I can offer about Lunasa. Also, for more information on this, the Irish Pagan School has a class that you can download online. Um, and it's 30 euro, 35 us dollars. And I actually just signed up for it. I'll be going to be listening to it later today. And if you purchase it, you can listen to it whenever, but it's a, a really great way to learn more about the holiday from an Irish source. So I highly recommend people check that out. And I will have a link to the article where I found this information from, which is from a site called a trip to Ireland.com. But I will, I will share that in our show notes. Fantastic. Um, I'm going to go check that out. All right. 
So we're getting to that part that everybody loves to hate and hates to love. Um, <laughs> Kanani reviews a movie that the rest of the world has already seen. And we need to find out today if Kanani will shit on your dreams or if she'll actually like this movie. And I hope to God that she likes this movie because we had so many listeners come out and say that, uh, that they wanted her to watch this. So today Kanani is going to review Kiki's delivery service. So I actually had to, I had the hardest time trying to find it. So I ended up buying it um, online and I waited to watch it until I had my daughter. And actually last week, uh, my goddaughter stayed with us. And so uh, a lot of the people had said not only was it a movie I should watch, but that it would be a good one to watch with my daughter as well. So I watched it with my daughter and my goddaughter. And it is a movie about a little witch who part of their, the witch tradition is once they turn 12 years old, they go off and have to find their own community and kind of find their own way as a witch. And Kiki, uh, who enjoys flying on her broom, uh, kind of inadvertently finds that her knack and her skill is, is flying and delivering things to people and helping people. So uh, it's Studio Ghibli movie. I'm obsessed and love Studio Ghibli movies. So this absolutely worked for me. I loved it. I thought it was adorable. My daughter loved it. Uh, I think my goddaughter really liked it. So it was it was definitely it was definitely a hit. And I'm very glad it is now in our in our library. So I got a question for you. Question for you, Kanani. Which one did you like better, Kiki's Delivery Service or The Wicker Man? Shut your face hole. <laughs> I mean, like, I just need to, hold on. I, I need to, I, I just need to make sure that I didn't hallucinate here. Did you say you liked it? I loved it. I thought it was adorable. <laughs> it was adorable. So far, what? of all the movies we've well, watched, of all the movies that I've been forced to watch, that is the one that I most enjoy. I am going to say that that movie, that little probably because it's kind of so kid-friendly and a little witch-lit movie. I'm going to say that that movie is second to my favorite, which is Practical Magic. Oh. Which I own. I love, love, love that movie. And so I'm going to say Kiki's is now second to Practical Magic. Well, you haven't seen Return to Oz yet. That's going to be your third favorite. I have not seen that, but I have had people tell me that have overheard you saying I have to watch that, that they've already told me I'm going to hate that movie and it's a terrible movie. So... (laughs) You won't go into it already hating. I've, I've already been told by multiple people. I don't know why she's making you watch that movie. You're going to hate that movie. I can tell you right now, you're going to hate that movie. If you're not a Patreon subscriber, if you are, you've probably seen this posted. But if you're not, you don't want to miss out because because our last guest, Jake Richards, tells a super creepy, like way. I almost had nightmares. Creepy, and I like creepy, so that's saying something. Creepy story about the Peggy hole. I'm not going to tell you what that is because one, I won't do it justice. And two, you got to go join our Patreon to hear this. So we're actually posting a lot of cool content on there and there's bits and pieces from episodes, little snippets that are only for our Patreon followers. So if you want to get, if you want to hear this super creepy, super weird and creepy story that almost gave Hillary nightmares, you should definitely go and check our check out our Patreon. I don't know what it is about the Southern accent, but the Southern accent makes for really terrifying ghost stories. And because I know when I was a kid, we would go visit my family in South Carolina, and my cousin Mandy 
would keep me awake all night telling me these horrifying ghost stories that she said were all true. And so I had all these flashbacks when Jake is telling this story about this shape-shifting ghost woman. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm back to my childhood. So yes, that is on Patreon. It's on Patreon. And there'll be some good stuff coming up too. If you if you join soon, you'll get to see a tour of my herb garden that I've talked yes. about like a bajillion times. I'll be doing that later this week because it's too fucking hot for anyone that's as pale as me to go out in the sun right now. <laughs> is it time for a sponsorship break? Yes! We want to thank Keen for sponsoring this episode. There are a lot of major shifts happening in my life right now and in the world, and sometimes I need someone to help me sort through these things. Calling Keen for a psychic reading was great, as Keen provides access to vetted psychics and spiritual advisors who provide guidance and insights on life's challenges, clarity and love, relationships, career, and more. When life seems to be speeding ahead of me, Keen advisors are available 24-7 for that last-minute check-in on what the next step should be. There's always someone online so you can easily schedule a call with an advisor. My advisor, Astrobeams, was very insightful and also encouraging. She provided really clear guidance, and it was just what I needed to help me make a big decision. When you find the right advisor, developing an ongoing relationship leads to a number of benefits. Monthly intention setting, gaining clarity on the significance of synchronicities, chakra clearing, or a gut check for a helpful and intuitive human that isn't a biased friend. Money is tight for many of us right now, but the good news is Keen is the most affordable way to meet new advisors. Each week, Keen sends its users discounts on readings, making Keen one of the most affordable ways to receive multiple psychic readings. If you're a current Keen user, check your email to see this week's discounts. As a new Keen customer and an awesome listener of ours, you can try your first 10 minutes for only $1.99. Pricing then depends on which advisor you choose, and the services are backed with satisfaction guaranteed. Try our try your first 10 minutes for only $1.99. Go to trykeen.com forward slash that witch life. Keen, because you deserve answers. Thanks again to Keen for sponsoring this episode. We are thrilled to welcome our guest, Christopher Penzak. Christopher is a witch, teacher, writer, and healing practitioner. His practice draws upon the foundation of both modern and traditional witchcraft, blended with the wisdom of mystical traditions from across the globe as a practitioner and teacher of shamanism, tarot, Reiki healing, herbalism, astrology, and Kabbalah. He is the founder of the Temple of Witchcraft tradition, and system of magical training based on the material of his books and classes. He is an ordained minister primarily serving the New Hampshire and Massachusetts pagan and metaphysical communities through public rituals, private counsel, and teaching, though he travels extensively teaching throughout the United States. Christopher, we're super excited to have you on today. How Thank are you, you so much. I'm doing well. How are you guys doing today? We're doing great. You know, Reasonable. We're having a heat wave here too, so I totally understand. <laughs> yeah, but New Englanders are a little hardier about the heat and the cold. Where Portlander, Oregonians, we need like a window of 40 to 70 degrees. If you get much outside of that, we don't do well. <laughs> yeah, it's a, our little Pacific Northwest kind of ecosystem here. Rarely, you know, we're kind of not used to getting above 80 degrees or so. So like even at 80, we're like, oh, it's so hot. So today it's 100 and so it feels like we're in an oven <laughs> and none of us have air conditioning or even like 
good, good enough fans. So (laughs) we're all dying today, but otherwise things are great. Um, if my plants survive, I'll be happy. Um, I'm sure they're equally as irritated with this like sudden increase in heat. Um, we are really excited to have you today. So earlier we were talking, um, a little bit about Lunasa and we were wondering if you could talk a little bit about your, your practices around Lunasa, what that looks like before we j- jump into kind of more plant specific, sorry, more plant focused questions. Sure. Um, well, in our tradition, in the way that I tend to teach things, nothing is particularly set. So although we have themes each year following each of the Sabbaths, we never do the same thing over and over again. Uh, so this particular year, we've had to change everything to be online, you know, yeah. um, which I think all of us have. So trying to find ways to celebrate that are not in the flesh and not having bread and not having wine and not dancing and not singing, but are still magical has been a challenge. So um, I've been doing, when I, it's been my turn to lead the Sabbaths or lead any of the other rituals, it's been doing a lot of stuff in vision. We tend to be a very um, vision, meditative, you know, spirit contacted kind of community. So we try to translate that and kind of turn the rituals into almost kind of guided meditations in those ways. So uh, this year we're doing a whole thing on the cosmic mill. Um, so we're talking about the mill and, and we have someone actually going to be singing the mill dance song for us, which is lovely, although the limits of Zoom mean that we can't sing, sing along or it'll sound crazy. Um, <laughs> but the idea that, that we're going to use the mill is almost the axis mundi and the idea that it's tethered to the North Star and it's kind of grinding the things that no longer serve and separating the wheat from the chaff and um, what are the seeds that we bring to it to be ground and what is the flour that we want to bake? So what are the good things we're bringing? What have we separated out from that? Uh, but doing a whole pretty intricate vision with the idea of the mill as a psychic place, which I think it is, um, and using the image of the nine maidens of the mill, which for me, so many of the nine mythological figures are interconnected. So whether it's the nine witches of Gloucester or the nine maidens that warm the cauldron of the underworld or obviously the nine sisters of Avalon or the nine muses of Greek mythology, I think they're all kind of flowing from a similar source. So we're going to be working with the the nine maidens of the mill. Um, And there's a whole system on the muses and how to determine which muse is your birth muse based on the astrology of it. So we've kind of extrapolated that and compared the muses to the ladies of the mill and uh, giving people a little lesson in how to find your your muse and who's going to be inspiring you for the year. Wow, that's amazing. If our listeners wanted to figure that out for themselves, is there a good place for them to go to do that? Uh, at the moment, we don't have it. I don't have it written in any book, and it's in an obscure, I don't even remember what text it's in, but it's in a pretty obscure alchemical text. Sure. Um, so the best thing I could say, and not to be pimping out stuff, but it is an open Sabbath to the public, and we've got members all across the world. And when you register, we're actually sending out that information. It's a, a simple chart. Or if people um, hear this, I don't know when this will be broadcast, but if people hear this uh, afterwards, if you just want to email me through my website, I'd be happy to send you the chart. It's no big deal. That's this is we actually talk about the Temple of Witchcraft a lot as a, as a great resource for people yeah. who are looking for uh, more more concentrated instruction and maybe don't have it in their area. And because, like you said, there are people all over the world. And it's it's such a I mean, I've, I've been having some real, real Temple of Witchcraft longings the last couple of weeks, especially being cooped up so much in, in New Hampshire in um, in. August is just so delicious and magical. It's such a witchy state. I don't think we always think about that out here on the West Coast. We think of Salem or we think of New Orleans, which, yes, those are witchy, but New Hampshire has a very witchy vibe to it. 
Yeah, we're the forest witches. <laughs> yes. yes. It's so true. I mean, that's yeah. honestly like the summer I spent in New Hampshire is where what I was in college is when I figured out I was a witch. And so going back to do things with Temple of Witchcraft has been like, oh, yeah, that's why I, I picked up the vibe for sure. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, the one thing I will say that has been, I don't know if I'd call it a blessing, but I guess a lesson from the whole COVID-19 stuff has been realizing um, how we could better serve our distant community. Like we have a, a mystery school and a seminary and it has people from all over the world. Those are very fixed classes with homework. And not everybody wants to be in school all the time. And uh, my original vision for it was, was to get enough teachers to teach locally and to do classes locally and to do all that wonderful stuff. Um, but realizing not everybody who's studied with us has somebody local that's going to do that or they don't necessarily want to take that mantle on. So through this last couple of months, we've really figured out like, you know, what can we offer that's free? Because I know a lot of people are having difficulty financially. And then what more can we offer open up online for people? And I, I think our challenge, but in a good way, when things can open up and we can meet in person again, whenever and however that is, to try to figure out ways to make it more inclusive to our distant members or double some things up or, or do something just in a way to keep, keep that outreach going. Well, uh, so the first question we ask all of our guests, um, and so I'll ask you, when did you first realize that you were a witch? Um, that is always a hard question for me because... You know, like so many of us, I think I've always have been, but the realization came after a skeptical phase. Mm -hmm. You know, I ended up um, in college, I think is really when it happened. But I, right after I graduated from high school, my first mentor, this is back in the days where like, you didn't want to tell kids you were involved in witchcraft because we had no witchcraft families or things like that. Or the, the festivals, at least around here, were not that open. Um, and it was very much, you were afraid of corrupting a minor is what she told me. She was a business owner in the, the local you know, communities. So she waited till I was 18 before she even hinted around that I was a witch, even though I'd known her since I was seven. Um, and as soon as this teacher told me that she was a witch, because she was my art teacher outside of this, the funny thing. Um, and I just thought she was crazy. I just thought she had been a part of a cult, that this was insane. And I just wanted to learn enough to talk to her about it, to kind of pull her out of the cult. Um, and funnily enough, you know, as the more I got involved, the more I was like, oh, I think this really makes a lot of sense and kind of woke to that realization <laughs> that it was for me. Um, but it really was probably the class with Lori Cabot. Her teacher was Lori Cabot. And I got to the point where she's like, you know, I need to take you to somebody who can kind of give you more formal ideas and training. Um, and after that first class with Lori Cabot, after finishing uh, Witchcraft One, the first degree classes, there's a, a test at the end that's based on psychic diagnosis and psychic healing. And, uh, you know, I went in from the class going, mm, this is interesting, but it could all be bullshit to, you know, maybe this, this is real. Okay, well, Lori Cabot can do it. Yep, she's pretty special to, oh, my God, I can do it. And I think it was the, oh, my God, I can do it, you know, really kind of blew my mind. And I really consider to be my first initiatory experience. I, I think the rituals and such have been great for initiations, but that was the, the change your life kind of initiation moment for me. Because just the whole concept of how interconnected everything was, and if I could pick up on people I didn't know and diagnose them accurately that had been verified from a doctor, then that current must work both ways, and I must be projecting. And I wasn't particularly happy in my life at that time, so I was just like, oh my God, what am I projecting out into the world? Um, and it really kind of woke me to the, the metaphysical reality. And I think that's when I decided... I don't know if I decided I was a witch at that point, but I decided I wanted to be a witch or I wanted to dedicate more of my life to this. So that was really the, the awakening experience for me. Well, Christopher, I'm excited to have you on because uh, I've read your book, The Plant Spirit Familiar. And I like, first of all, I'm a big, I'm a, a 
big plant nerd, uh, both in magical plants, but also just plants in general. Uh, I think for a long time, I also lied to myself about being able to keep plants. I just wasn't responsible. And then I, (laughs) and then I started to learn like, Oh, right. You like, you know, you get what you, you get what you put into something. Um, and so then I started getting really into plants and like geeking out about plants and herbs and, you know, both foraging herbs and growing herbs. And now I have like herb garden and an edible garden and a bajillion, way too many houseplants. It's a problem. Um, and so I'm excited to, uh, to chat with you about herbal magic today. Um, can you, can you tell me a little bit what first drew you to the use of plants in your own magical practice? Well, I think at heart, you know, when you, you asked before, how'd you first awaken to being a witch or how would you know that you were first a witch? Um, me kind of awakening to it through the healing work with Lori Cabot was like the awakening that this is real. But when I looked back on, you know, childhood stuff that I think we all get into, I remember being so deeply involved with the plants, but not really knowing what to do. You know, I, my dad was a big gardener and we had, you know, the big vegetable garden and everything. I remember right next to his garden planting an herb garden. I didn't know why, but I knew it was super important. So I had my lavender and that was actually the main thing I can remember. It was lavender, but I think lavender, parsley, some dill, some sage, um, and I was probably like, I don't know, nine at the time, maybe 11. And uh, going forward from that, like just even as a little kid playing, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, you know, Uh-oh. fantasy type of thing, collecting things in the forest, having a big box of little bottles that had, you know, sticks in it and had different flowers I collected and dried. So I was sort of doing, you know, the precursors to herbalism and herbal magic, but not really knowing what that was, but just kind of plain pretend. But I think for so many of us, we've done it in lives before. And so we kind of remember these things, but we don't really know what to do with them. Mm-hmm. You know, so much so that um, when I was trying to figure out, like, you know, that big question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, I really got deeply involved in alchemy and trying to understand exactly what alchemy was. And at that time, I, since then, I've met, you know, modern alchemists that practiced. But usually, you know, your, your local library with story of alchemy would be like, and then they discovered chemistry and realized alchemy wasn't real. And you know, and I decided I wanted to be a chemist because of that. And then something kind of stopped me right as I was going into college. I had all the all set up to you know go into chemical engineering, and then I kind of did a hard pivot and decided to become a music major, surprising all my family and delighting them to no end. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, "What?" <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty I also I also was a music music major. So like, oh wow, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I studied voice and. Uh, and my family was like scientists. They were all medical, like medical or science, and a few te- a few academics. Uh, and so they also were like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> so from there, I ended up, um, you know, studying with Lori Cabot. The second degree of it is very much what we think of as like modern Wicca and witchcraft of the mm-hmm. potions and the circles and the casting of the spells and everything. And uh, some of my most profound experiences were actually just making magical potions. So, you know, the idea of charging each ingredient and really getting in tune with its vibration and really speaking to its spirit and getting a sense of what it was all about before you tossed into the cauldron uh, was really meaningful to me. And, you know, when people would talk about from my former Catholic background, um, the mystical experiences they had, I was like, well, I never really understood what that was about, but I'm sort of feeling it with the plants. Um, And I sort of got disenchanted with my pagan community. It's interesting you'd said that, like, oh, this is home for me. I don't know if I've ever felt that way, even with the pagan community. I feel like I've always been kind of outsider among outsiders. So um, for something that was supposed to be all about healing and the magic of healing and the wise woman traditions and, you know, all that kind of archetype we get sold when we get into it, nobody around me in kind of the Salem, Massachusetts area and into New Hampshire really knew a lot of healing beyond what they taught me. 
So I started going into more of the holistic health stuff. So I started with an herbalist and I started with the flower essence practitioner and I got certified in both of those. And uh, that led me sort of into kind of more the new age world. And eventually I circled back into witchcraft, but it was because I wanted to be a better healer that I kind of explored. That's awesome. Yeah, I think plants were a huge, a huge draw, have always been a huge draw for me also. Um, I don't know. I just, I think once I started connecting with plants, I, I was like my, everything changed for me. <laughs> I was just like, Oh, wait a minute. It, that felt so natural, you know, just like that relationship between plants. Um, yeah. So I totally, I'm glad you found your way back around. Sometimes we go down that path, right? We just kind of do this. Okay. We're going to go over here. We're going to go over here to kind of find our way around to where we fit in that place, you know? Right. Right. I feel like I'm in that space right now, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on the outskirts just trying to, and where I fit in is with Kanani and Hillary. Yeah. Um. <laughs> really, when I mean home, I mean these two weirdos. Gotcha. <laughs> That's pretty much it right there. Yeah, I feel like I, I was I was so unsatisfied with the community I had. Um, I eventually always ended up creating groups. And so that's how the Temple of Witchcraft came about because I wasn't really happy with the groups that were in my area and they didn't really embody the things I wanted. Yeah, you know, I think that there's something to be said for, you know, you know, take, gaining knowledge and gaining experience, but creating what you want. I mean, I, I certainly feel like I've taken a lot of time to create the type of community that I want. I mean, I've met some amazing people along the way, right? Um, but I think there's something to be said for like finding what makes sense to you and then making space for that to exist, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, so can you talk to us a little bit about the relationship a witch builds with plants? For me, it's a, it's like a it's a mutual bond. You know, it's a mutual relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think of everything is ensouled or inspirited. Everything has kind of a guiding intelligence and its own agendas at times. And you know, spirits are people too, is what I like to say. Um, and I think that includes plant spirits. You know, one of the most humbling experiences I had early on was, you know, that whole assignment of go talk to a tree. Um, and there were these three oak trees in the backyard where I grew up. And it's when I first started practicing. We're still in that house. And uh, going up to the trees, like all excited, you know, new witch and, and be like, oh, the trees are going to talk to me. And the trees just had such a sense to me of being nonplussed. And we're like, oh, it's a human. Like, we know you, you know, but they had their own business they were doing. It was almost like I was a little kid interrupting them and, and, um, I was so taken aback. I was maybe 18 or 19 at that time, but I, I was so taken aback that that was the response in such a way that was helpful for me because I realized, well, I'm not making this up because if I was making this up, they'd be like, oh, so happy to see me and it would be so great and would affirm all the things I wanted to affirm. But the fact that it, it surprised me, you know, started to show me, okay, these techniques to speak to the spirits, I think there's something real to them and having other verifiable experiences were good. Um, so from that point forward, you know, it was really the idea of, of getting communication. And for me, because I'm such a skeptic, getting verified communication has been super helpful. So my flower essence teachers and my herbal teachers often talked about how the plants build special relationships with people and they'll tell you what they're for. And sometimes like the same herb in different parts of the country or different parts of the world are used for different things, even though they have the same chemicals, because that's not their relationship with those people. And so in this modern world, we're going to be really kind of reforging our own individual relationships with them. So um, having the plants tell you what they want to be used for magically and medicinally, and then that verification of looking up in a book and realizing like, oh, that really is what it's for. But also having to kind of decipher through that language has been an interesting part of the relationship because although spirits are people too in a, a way that they have their own agenda and plants are spirits, 
they don't necessarily have the same language of, you know, modern American English that we do. So they're not always going to convey things in the easiest ways for us to understand because their worldview is so different. I remember having uh, one of my first and early profound experiences in flower essence training was working with the arrow. And I felt like I sat down, the assignment was you sit down with the arrow and you speak with it and try to get a, a convey what it's about. And it might give you images, sensations, feelings, words, you know, they're all going to communicate differently. And I got this sense of being enveloped in like a big cocoon or a big bubble. And I was very, you know, warm and happy and thinking, oh, this is great. And then I felt like I was pushed out and I got sort of upset. And then that process repeated three or four times where it'd be all enveloped and it'd be pushed out and there'd be a different barrier between us. Um, and I didn't really get what it was trying to say to me. So I left that experience really frustrated, but wrote down all my field notes and, you know, we're discussing it back in class. And uh, just as witches have, you know, their big blue book from, from Uncle Bucky, as I like to say, um, the flower essence folks have their own big blue book called the flower essence repertory. And so we opened up that book to Yarrow and my teacher's like, read this and tell me what you think. And it was all about how Yarrow is about boundaries and how if your boundaries are too restrained, it expands them. If they're too expanded, it brings them in. If there's something that's good, it lets it in through the boundary. If it's something that's bad, it sends it out. So the yarrow plant was really trying to tell me about all these aspects of boundaries by showing me how it could let me in or showing how it could keep me out based on like a very kinesthetic experience. But because I'm so verbal, I expected a, a verbal message from it. So also kind of getting out of my head that they can teach you in ways that are unexpected. So for me, just as a healer, magical practitioner, which all of that has been about really meeting the plants where they're at and really trying to listen to what they're trying to say to me um, in the language that they're using. Because, you know, just because it's easier for me doesn't mean it's going to be the best way to convey it to me. He could have talked all over the Yarrow Spirit, could have talked all about boundaries, and I probably would have intellectually gotten it. But having such a kinesthetic experience was such a, a teaching experience for me. So just really treating them as the entities that they are, asking them what they need, both on that kind of macrocosmic level of like the oversoul of the plant spirit of, of the whole race of that species of plants, you know, or working with that individual one that's in your garden and realizing that plants operate on both those levels. Like uh, having an experience with Totora. Totora has become my strongest plant ally and is very powerful and very engaging for me. But part of it also is a deal. You know, Totora says, I want you to teach more about me. You know, I'm not being talked enough about. Uh, a lot of witches don't know what I am. And then I also want you to scatter my seeds and teach people how to grow me and to kind of cultivate me more. So, you know, people appreciate me as the, the plant that I am in the garden, in the wild, wherever it may be, but I want to be grown more. So also recognizing that that was part of the deal, you know, so just like working with people and having to make bargains and arrangements that spirits are the same way and plant spirits are the same way too. I think that's such a, an important lesson is that, I mean, and I, I fell into that too in the beginning was that I expected messages to come through verbally, right? You know, so I was like, well, I talk, so why isn't this plant, crystal, whatever I was working with, talking to me, right? And I think that that's a really good point that, you know, um, that's not always the way that that spirits communicate. I mean, any kind of spirit. So I think being open to that and re recognizing that it's not not always going to be a scenario where you're having a chat with someone that it's, that it can be an experience a feeling a, you know, as, as you said, getting immersed and then feeling the rejection and then getting immersed saying like, Hey, these are my boundaries. I'm not going to do whatever I want. I mean, you know, this is like, I'm not just doing your bidding forever the way you want it to happen. Um, yeah. And I, I think that there's a, a way in observing the feelings you get from a plant and the way you observe 
uh, certain actions about an animal when they're scared or when they're happy. Um, I know that recently when I was walking Ichabod, we passed a fawn and Ichabod was not interested in his prey drive is super low. So he was like looking at this fawn and was like, whatever. But this fawn saw this giant Malamute shepherd mix. and was like, oh crap, and started bouncing. And a lot of people look at that and go, how cute, it's a happy fawn. And I was like, no, that's a, a predator detractor because it, it, it's a, it, will, it will confuse most predators just that they can't follow you as fast if you're jumping up and down. Um, but an experience I had with plants that was like this was there was a tree up in Fort Tryon Park in New York City when I lived there. And every time I saw this tree, I just wanted to hug it. And there was a while, like Christopher, I was skeptical of the feelings I was getting and that this tree was happy to see me because every time I felt this tree, it was like, Oh, you're here. And just a kind of vibration that I, I interpreted as happiness. And then one day I went up there, hugged the tree and that feeling wasn't there. Instead it was a feeling that I can only describe as being like, ah, 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 like a panic. And I thought, what, what has happened here? And I wondered if I was creating that, if I was, you know, in, in, in putting some kind of, uh, of my own story or whatever, of a time I was anxious and just putting it on this tree. And I was like, okay, that's a little weird. But then later that week I was at a restaurant and saw a flyer that said that there had been a vandal who had gone into the park and had cut down about a dozen trees oh, wow. in that area of where that tree had been just a few days before I had gone and had that experience in which the tree was panicking. And I've learned since that the trees have their underground network through their roots. And so I do believe that what I felt was the tree communicating to me that it was scared. Maybe it was scared of me because obviously a human had done that. It wondered, am I going to do that? Or it was just telling me that it had been traumatized. So uh, sadly, the, the park, I did come back around one day and saw the tree again and the tree had been cut down. Oh, my God. So, yeah, I've, uh, I took a piece of its bark and it's on my ancestor altar. All right, because that was the first true. Like oh, I, when I was a kid, I made friends with a squash plant. We were very tight, but as an adult, <laughs> as a witch, that was the first tree where I, we were really, really good friends. And um, it was sad that, that he was gone. But I'm, I'm with you, Christopher. It was that that kind of confirmation that I needed. That okay, I did pick up on something there. Yeah, I think that's so important when you're studying, and even you know to this day, I, I still like to have confirmation of something because I think it's very easy to get off the rails and assume every intuition you have is absolutely right about yourself and everyone else. And I found that's not to be true. So it's always nice to have little confirmations, whether it be with the plants or whether it be, you know, even just psychic stuff you pick up on. I, I always appreciate that. Let me say, Christopher, one of the things that I really love about uh, what you've been saying and, and kind of listening to you talk and, and stuff is I love that you're that you're just a skeptic. And I love that. Because I, I think that that's something that's very helpful for people, especially with magical practice, is to just kind of, yes, you want to use your intuition, and yes, you want to kind of trust things and listen, but you also kind of, you do want a little bit of verify. You do want to kind of step back and assess and think about things, and and so I like that as you kind of describe things, you also kind of talk about checking back in with yourself and not getting too far off. Thank you. Thank you. I think that is important. And I think it's also important to realize not everybody's great at everything. You know, when I got involved in this, I was super interested in it, you know, in as I got through my skeptical phase and realized my friend wasn't in a cult, or if she was, it wasn't a bad cult, it was helpful for her. 
Um, you know, there's, there's often a sense for people who are very intuitive and very creative to kind of run away with a little thing and, and get really engrossed in it. And that could be fun at times, but not always helpful for people who are not on the same page. So I remember like, you know, people talking about my first class, the amazing power of crystals. And I love crystals right now. I love different stones. Although honestly, these days I probably love the beach stone as much as I love the rare, you know, gem. Um, but at the same time, you know, people are like, can you feel the energy in this quartz? And I'd be like, I can feel it's a rock, you know, <laughs> they'd just be like, no, can't you feel the energy, the vibration? It's just humming in my hands. I was like, yeah, it's a rock. Like I didn't feel those things. It took me a long time to train myself into listening to those subtle cues. You know, uh, my friend Storm Fairy Wolf often talks about how, you know, it's subtle energy and we say it's subtle energy for a reason. It's subtle. So for a lot of people who are just dying to have that kind of permission to feel things, which I think is great. And sometimes some people have been feeling things all their lives and feel like that they don't have a space to have that be okay. Uh, but for a lot of us are on the opposite end of the spectrum. And it was just, you know, it took me a while to feel things intuitively and to trust those impressions. And the verification part really, you know, helped me kind of bring it to reality because I think, you know, I could, I could have all sorts of sensations and think, oh, I'm having an experience. But you know, how do I know that I'm having this experience? And I've seen so many people in our, our magical and new age communities really kind of go off the rails because they just, they can't function with verification. Everything is automatically verified because they had it. Christopher, is there, you know, with everything that's going on in the world right now, with COVID, with, uh, you know, with social justice, with political unrest, what, is there an herb that you think is just especially powerful or useful during these trying times? That is a great question. I think she'd be very mad at me if I did not mention my beloved Melissa Lemon oh, Balm. Um, that's another one that's been. Please, is that why I have so much at my house? So yeah, much at my house she's everywhere. So helpful. You know, she really is. She's the most helpful herb, I think. Um, it's filled with a lot of life force, but it's not that burning life force. So you don't kind of fills you up without kind of setting you on fire. Um, so it's great if you feel like you're anxiety ridden, it's not something that's going to kind of pump you up like a fire correspondence. It definitely just nourishes you. Um, she's really great for any type of anxiety of the digestive system. She's really great for any type of anxiety of the nervous system, but she's not a sedative. Um, I just find Melissa to be such a, a powerful herb. Lemon balm, it just smells so good, is easy to grow, you know, is not, not, um, taken over any place. It's not invasive. I just, I think she's just such a great herb. I love to have her everywhere. Um, premier herb of the alchemist. It's one of the first tinctures you learn to make in alchemy because it does support your life force because those alchemists, you know, end up subjecting themselves to all sorts of toxic stuff in the laboratory. So I just love her. I think that's that's been a really important herb. Um, on a medicinal... What, f- I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, one, one note about that. Um, at, in the Pacific Northwest, lemon balm is invasive. Oh, really? So just, yeah, it is invasive. So just mentioning that to anyone out, out here, and it, it does grow very quickly. It loves this, the cool dampness. So we, we recommend our listeners to grow it in pots yeah. if they want to grow it in this part of the country. Oh, yeah, because like... Good. No, I didn't know that. I'd say like uh, probably a quarter of my very large yard has lemon balm. Like in, I'll be mowing the lawn and I'll be like, what's that smell? And I'm like, God, there must have been some small sprouts. <laughs> I mean, like it's every, I mean, it's everywhere. I could, I, I, I don't think, I mean, I don't think I'd have enough jars in the store to fill how much lemon balm is in my backyard. What's a good way to, sh- to show thanks to plants that you're using? Like, are there offerings that are good? Is there a way that you feel like a, a witch that's using these plants or herbs in their practice can give gratitude? I think, you know, gratitude is the hugest thing and gratitude by example. So 
Um, while offerings are nice from a, a magical perspective, I think the greatest offering is watering. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think a lot of plants don't always necessarily need the things that we often give as offerings, you know, and, and I've seen a lot of things of pour out milk or pour out beer or pour out these things. The plants that I work with, they really want water. So um, pouring out the water when they're dry, really taking care of them. If you're cultivating herbs, really to take care of them. And for me, it's really been the verbalization, talking out loud to them has been a huge part of it. You know, okay. just having that relationship, honoring and recognizing them as entities, just as you might talk to a, a beloved pet, talking to the, the plants out loud as well. It's, it's been huge for me. I was saying earlier in the podcast during our intro that my offering to my plants last night was ladybugs because I noticed like two spider mites on one plant and I was like, no way is this happening. Like I've spent <laughs> way too much time trying to make sure that all of these plant babies are happy. And so I unleashed like a hundred ladybugs in my yard yesterday. I find also with plant infections, um, particularly if you've got a strong magical relationship with the plant, to really kind of look at what's reciprocal about going on in your life or going on yeah. in your community. Um, I raise mandrakes and the, the mandrakes, we have one for each of the, the founders of the Temple of Witchcraft, my two partners, Adam and Steve and I all have three mandrakes next to each other and a couple more in the house, but those are our three primary ones. And mandrakes, for as poisonous as they are, they're prone to all sorts of the infections that tomatoes get. Um, so we get everything from different types of molds to different types of insects. And it's always interesting. They're almost like a barometer for what's going on in my life mm. or a barometer for the pressures that are coming to me from other people, whether it be someone not mis- wishing me well, whether it be energetically, psychically, magically, um, or just you know certain imbalances in my own life. I can notice them in the, the regenerative nature of the mandrake. That's amazing. That's such a good, that's such a good point. Cause I think, yeah, like my science brain is like, what is going on with this? Why is this leaf turning brown? <laughs> like, what is happening? You know? <laughs> and then I'm always like looking at, you know, I'm like looking up on the internet, like maybe I'm overwatering, maybe I'm underwatering, but I think that that's such a good point. Like, and thank you for that because I'll definitely start tuning into like, what is, yeah. What is like the energetic cause of that too? Because I, I think that's, Cause I've noticed that with some of my house plants recently and I'm like, Oh, maybe I need to do a good clearing of the space because there's been a lot going on in the last couple of months. Like we actually had a listener question question and we wanted to have you weigh in on it so we can all discuss it together. So this listener said, I have a question question of the use of salt in witchcraft spells, practice, etc. I live in the great lakes area. Several studies have found that these powerful waterways are the watershed in my uh, in my state are becoming more salty from the widespread use of salt in the winters in this area. Uh, many spells and, and circle casting literature I have read uses salt for a variety of reasons, mainly cleansing and protection because of the alarming environmental changes occurring. I am trying to do all that I can to not contribute to things that may cause further environmental harm. So I am incredibly wary of using salt. Do you have any suggestions on what, what else can be used in place of salt or resources or references I can study that would provide alternates to salt use? Hmm, that is a great question. Not a, an idea I've had to contemplate before. Um, I guess it depends on what she's using the salt for, but if it's primarily for protection or cleansing, um, I might suggest making a gem elixir of another protective or cleansing um, mineral and not necessarily having it be dissolved in the water, but something like, let's say, like a black tourmaline or a smoky quartz mm. or something like that could be lovely, or rudal quartz. 
And what if if she did that? What would be a good way? So like, uh, how could she implement? Or I don't know. I'm making a, a generalization of this person's gender, but how could this listener um, uh, utilize that? Well, if you're using uh, mixing salt and water together and spurging your circle area mm-hmm. or using it as a cleanse or a wash for yep. um, your hands or your ritual tools or things like that, you could make the gem elixir and preserve it for. So for people not familiar with the gem elixir or a flower essence, uh, they're a way to imprint the vibration of a substance onto the water. So you get a lot of its magical virtue without having a lot of its chemical. Mm-hmm. So um, what you do is take a, a glass bowl filled with water. And particularly for this rite, you might, you know, not necessarily have it be super purified water, but, you know, whatever's available to you and uh, uh, soak the mineral in it in sunlight. And that'll transfer the virtue of it just for a few hours. And then generally, if you're making a medicine of it, like a, a vibrational remedy to, to give people in a smaller dose, um, you'd preserve it by adding some alcohol, say a high proof brandy, or uh, if you have problems with alcohol, a high proof or a high concentration vinegar, like an apple cider vinegar. And uh, that's the mother essence. And you take a few drops of that and put it into another bottle that's diluted that's the same type of solution of alcohol and water. And then you might take a few drops of that and put that into a dosage bottle to take orally. But if you're using it ritually, I might even just take the mother essence of it and pour out a few drops of it into my um, bowl of water on my altar to use it for my cleansings instead mm. of putting salt in it. Just put a few drops of the tincture. Oh, that's really smart. Thank you. For I think. I think I also just want to, um, first of all, commend this this witch for being so conscientious about their environment and not thinking that they are exempt yeah. from potentially damaging their environment because they're a witch, which I think is a problem. On that note, I also want to, to let's look at the differences between what's happening institutionally and what you're doing. So, so the salt, um, uh, you, I think they said that it was coming from salt from the winter time. Salted rose. Okay, so that's a very high quantity, high concentration, also chemically, um, chemically concentrated kind of salt. Very, very different than the kind of like table salt you might have in your home. Um, and also the quantities of how much is being used and and causing problems in the water. The kind of the amount of salt you would be using and the kind of salt you would be using is unlikely to cause a lot of environmental damage. Now that being said. I feel that your decision to stay away from salt is actually more of a a spiritual and energetic contribution. It's a way of saying to the land spirits, I recognize that this is harming Mm -hmm. you. And so I'm going to do, I'm going to withdraw this, um, you know, in in order to, you know, in order to help with the energetic balance. So I say that to mean that if you've used salt in the past, don't be hard on yourself because I cannot imagine that you have used anywhere near the amount of salt and the kind of salt that is causing the same environmental damage as what's happening with these salted roadways. So I feel like I really want to support you in continuing to say, I'm going to with, I'm not going to use this mineral because I recognize that this hurts you. And energetically that's going to create a better bond with the earth spirits and otherwise. And I think that Christopher's suggestions are, are absolutely wonderful. One of the things that I sometimes use is a sprig of rosemary mm. in water. And that's a great way. Yeah. Clean water with some rosemary and just like smack the area with it. Um, I used that recently after a really bad nightmare. Um, I went out and got, uh, uh, it, it ran some water on some rosemary to kind of cleanse myself off with it out in the backyard. So the dream would leave with me out into the, into the space and the land spirits knew what I was doing and they were fine with it because it, what was going on in my head was not going to affect them. <laughs> so they, they totally got that. But um, again, I'm really commending you for making this, this very spiritual choice, but Please don't be hard on yourself if you've used salt in the past because I cannot imagine you did it at the 
the quantities that would, it would take to damage your environment. Another interesting idea I have is um, from an alchemical model, working with the plant salts. So uh, in mm. alchemy, you can extract the salt from the plants, which is just the minerals. It's not necessarily sodium chloride. Um, but after you make a tincture, you take the herbs out and then you actually burn what's left over, what they call the mark. Um, and it burns down to ash and then you heat it up and it goes from black ash to gray ash to white ash if you're going to be really hardcore about it. Um, but it has a lot of the magical virtues of the plant. So you could take a protective herb, let's say like a comfrey or a horsetail, and you might you know, make a tincture and have it for medicine and then use the plant salts if you're not going to get further into alchemy. And you could use that magically like you'd use regular salt, but it wouldn't be any different than if you had it in your garden and it decayed. Oh my gosh. I didn't even know that was possible. That is like, I love that. (laughs) I'm like, now I know what I'm going to do all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If you want to get really hardcore about it in alchemy, they separate out the salts, they purify them, and then they add them back into the tincture to make what's called the spigeric tincture. Although that's the simple method. If you want to have a whole lab, there's a whole more complex. There's a whole thing. Yeah. Wow. If I could make a bet as to who on this podcast team would do that, I'm guessing it would definitely be not Kanani. It would <laughs> That's a given. <laughs> yeah, I just heard she goes, oh, there's effort there. Yeah, no, that's, that's hey, not going to be me. if I can buy it, no, I'm down. Yeah, for me, while Hillary's taking notes and she's like, where can I get the equipment? I'm going to do this. <laughs> I literally was like, I'm like, if I had unlimited funds to buy like all of this, like science, like alchemy equipment that I wanted, I would be like, doing all of my own essential oils. I like all of my <laughs> Well, Christopher, uh, what is a good way for people to keep in touch with you? Uh, probably the best way is my mailing list, which can be found at ChristopherPenzak.com. Okay. Um, I try to send that out a couple, couple times a year, maybe four or five times a year. Um, I'm also on all the social medias. Well, not all the social medias, but a lot of the social medias. So I'm on Facebook um, with both a personal and a professional page, Twitter, Instagram. Um, and then you can find a lot about my community work, which is where honestly I'm doing most of my stuff right now is through the temple of witchcraft. So we have both a website and those social medias as well. So temple of witchcraft.org, um, or check us out on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Well, Christopher, it's been just a joy having you on. Thank you so much for coming on and giving us all of this amazing information. I'm like already, my mind is already like, oh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. And I'm so excited. <laughs> so thank you for sharing all of that uh, with us. And, um, and I know our listeners are going to take so much value in it. I know we have a lot of listeners who are really in love with plants. And if you haven't checked out Christopher's book, The Plant, Fami- the Plant Spirit Familiar, go, go buy it. It's amazing. There's so much information in there. Uh, about plants um, specifically. And so to wrap up, we just uh, thank you for so much for listening to the show. If you want to support the show, the best way is to subscribe, subscribe, rate and review us on your favorite podcast forum. We are now on Patreon. So go check us out there. We have lots of cool content, uh, including uh, little snippets from episodes that aren't on our main episodes. So if you want some bonus content, that's a great place to get it. As an, ascent, as an incentive, we are holding a live online ritual and Q&A session for anyone who becomes a Patreon between now and the end of July. So a few more days, y'all. Get in on that. Get in on that. Uh, if you don't want to commit to a monthly subscription, we c- you can buy us a um, buy us a Kofi, or you can purchase a handmade that witch life merchandise on our Etsy store. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so be sure to follow us there and k- to keep in touch for show notes, audio transcripts, or to ask a question to answer on a future episode. Or if you have any suggestions for those um, 
for those who have asked questions, go to thatwitchlife.com. Until then, keep moting that shit, and we'll talk to you next week. Yes! Find us at thatwitchlife.com for archived episodes or to ask your burning questions for us to answer in a future podcast. So mote it be. It's Courtney's fault. I do not have a friendly face. I look like I want to shame people. That is my design. Courtney has a friendly face, and it's infuriating because people then want to talk to you, and it makes me crazy. I would not have a friendly face. Oh I was hidden. I had on giant sunglasses and my mask. How was I supposed to look friendly? You can't even see who I am. You smell it's not- friendly. It's annoying. I did smell friendly. It's too. I, I wear really, I wear really pretty deodorant. You know, I wear men's old, I wear men's old spice deodorant. It smells really good in, you know, biologically female chemistry. There's something about it. So just tip out there, people. You're like, just a tip. Just a tip. Yeah. I, I smell fabulous because I use men's deodorant. Yeah. So that's why the meat counter guy loved you. Oh my God. <laughs> it is your fault. <laughs>